Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Uh, it is Easter, and I just want to go on record as saying I'm, I'm not against bunnies. Like, you know, I, I like bunnies. I like them a lot. We have bunnies in our yard all the time, and I, I like them. Bunnies are okay. But I do find it amazing that our secular culture has taken over Easter even more than Christmas. I was walking down the seasonal aisle this week in, in Kroger, and I was looking everywhere for a, a chocolate tomb or a marshmallow grave, and I, you know, I, could, I could find nothing. You know, I get lots of bunnies, lots of chicks, no tombs, no graves, no, nowhere. That's amazing. You know, and as Christians, we, we kind of lament the fact that the culture has taken over our holy days. It's frustrating to us. But, you know, with Easter in particular, I think that probably that's happened because the word Easter in English really doesn't convey anything to our minds about the real significance of this holy day. The point of this day is simply in a word, resurrection. The resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And probably the most important passage in Scripture outside of the Gospels about the resurrection is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I'd like for us to spend a few moments there together this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 3. Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers and he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul begins by laying out the historical facts of the gospel. He begins with the historicity of the gospel, and he makes three very simple points. First, Jesus Christ died. And how do we know that he died? Well, because he was buried. He didn't just faint after a day of torture and three days in a cold grave. He really, genuinely died. And then, Paul tells us, he was raised from the dead. It wasn't merely a resuscitation of a fainting man. It was a man who had genuinely died. And when he rose from the dead, he rose as a resurrected man. That is a man who would no longer be subject to bodily decay and death. He had once and for all conquered sin and he had conquered death. And Paul goes on to validate that fact. He gives us two thoughts. First, it was predicted in the Old Testament. It says this happened according to the scripture. We see it in Isaiah, we see it in Jeremiah, we see it in Ezekiel, we see it in the Psalms, and we see Jesus Christ himself making the statement that he would die, be buried, and rise from the dead. Furthermore, he appeared to many people. Read with me again, verse 4. It says, he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, then also to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of them remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul says, these are the facts of the gospel. Believe them. And here's how we know that they're valid. He appeared to all of these people, consistent with what had been prophesied, and these people are still around today. You can ask them. You can question them. Most of them are still alive. And yet in Paul's day, as well as in our day, there are attacks against the resurrection of Jesus Christ that are constantly occurring. Theories develop that try to explain away the resurrection. The first theory was given by the Jewish leaders. Their theory was this, or their 
lie was this. The disciples conspired to steal the body. Remember after the resurrection, the Roman guards came to them and and said, the body's gone. They said, well, here's what we need you to do. Tell the governor, that is Pontius Pilate, that you fell asleep. And when he finds out, we will go and we will plead your case. Now, why did they need the Jewish authorities to plead their case? Because if Roman guards fell asleep on duty, the penalty was death. But that was the best answer they could come up with, other than validating the resurrection itself. The Roman guards couldn't come up with any reason. They had been blown away. They had, they'd run off in fear as they saw these angelic beings. And the Jewish authorities surely could not accept the resurrection. So they said, here's what you need to say. And here's the story that we want you to circulate. The disciples conspired to steal the body. Now, as we think about that theory, I want you to keep in mind a visual image of the tomb. This is not uh, the tomb where Jesus was laid, but he would have been laid in a tomb very similar to this. It would have been cut out of a stone hill. It would be a groove that would be cut in front with a stone that could roll down in front of the opening. That opening there on the side was cut later, probably by people who were trying to rob the graves. Now, to give you a perspective on how large these stones may have been, I got a picture of a friend of mine standing next to one. Hey, if you had a wealthy person, they would make a big grave. And they would have a huge stone that would roll in front of it. So the stone could weigh you know, something small like a ton or two, or it could be as large as a stone like this. So, now imagining again, going back to this original photo, this is what we have. A Roman guard has been placed in front of the tomb of Jesus. That would be 16 Roman soldiers. Well-trained, professional killers. Highly disciplined men. Since they had a nighttime duty, four of them would be on guard. The other 12 would sleep in front of them. So that if anyone came, they would have to step through the men who were sleeping, waking them up. And then the guards on duty, who were awake and alert, could help defend. All 16 men trained to fight. The theory that was proposed was that all of these men fell asleep. All of these men fell asleep. Of course, knowing that the consequence to them would be death. But this is the theory. They all fell asleep. And so the disciples, the 11 men, came and they crept very silently past all 16 Roman guards. And then very quietly, they took the stone and rolled it up and no one heard a sound. Right? And then they snuck in and they took the body of Jesus and they ran off. Right? That's the theory. I, don't, I, don't, I doubt it. I don't, I don't think so. I cannot imagine that that would have happened. Another possibility is that the men, the Roman guards, didn't actually fall asleep. Instead, the 11 disciples uh, came and attacked them, right? They came and attacked, and, and uh, they, they attacked the four, and they dispatched those, and before the rest could wake up, they'd killed those four, and then they turned and they killed the other 12. And so these three fishermen and one accountant and uh, a few others who had, who had uh, right, previously been cowering in fear just hours earlier suddenly found their courage and they rushed upon the 16 professional killers and dispatched them, rolled the stone away and stole the body. I I doubt it. I doubt it. I don't think that it's possible that they stole the body. But if they had, then what happened is they, they stole the body. They knew that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. But they went and hid the body somewhere and then they started telling a lie. Jesus has risen. Jesus has risen. And then they kept that lie for 40 years. 
No one ever leaked a word. And every single one of them suffered and died for what they knew was a lie. I don't think so. Charles Colson was a member of Richard Nixon's staff, and he got caught up in Watergate. He was arrested, he was convicted, thrown in prison, and while in prison, he examined the claims of Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. Second theory. Disciples conspired to seal the body. Second, Jewish leaders stole the body. But then we're forced to ask why. Why in the world would the Jewish leaders steal the body? The Jewish leaders wanted a dead Jesus. They needed a body in the ground. A resurrected Jesus gave them all kinds of problems. The absence of the body really bothered them. There is no motive whatsoever for the Jewish leaders to steal it. Third possible theory. Disciples went to the wrong tomb. Now granted, I mean they're pretty stressed out right now. And we could even say not, not the, the absolute brightest guys that Jesus could have chosen. Right? But remember there were women with the disciples and the women would have asked directions. All right. So I don't buy this one. They went to the wrong tomb. Remembering Jerusalem is actually a pretty small place. They would have figured it out. Fourth possible theory. All the witnesses were delusional. Peter saw the resurrected Jesus, but really it was a hallucination. Then Jesus came to the other apostles, but they had the same hallucination. Then Jesus appeared to all of them together, including all of the women. And they had the same hallucination. Then he appeared to 500 people and they had a mass hallucination. 500 people having the same hallucination. I, I, again, I just, I don't, I don't buy it. I can't imagine that there wasn't one of those 500 people who didn't say, hey, wake up, you're seeing things. No, the tomb was empty on Easter morning because Jesus had risen from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. It's true. And validating this, for me and my own personal life, was enormous. It was enormous. When I was in college, I worked back through this process because I began to realize if there is no resurrection, there is no Christian faith whatsoever. And so I pressed on this issue. And I came to the conclusion that the only reasonable explanation for the fact that there is no body is that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's true. It's true, but it's also important and relevant in our daily lives. There's a man named Marcus Borg. He's a theologian. He's part of the Jesus Seminar movement. He has spent his entire adult career as a theologian denying the resurrection. He once made this statement. As a child, I took it for granted that Easter meant that Jesus literally rose from the dead. I now see Easter very differently. For me, it is irrelevant whether or not the tomb was empty. Whether Easter involves something remarkable happening to the physical body of Jesus is irrelevant. The poet named John Updike reasoned more accurately this way. He said, make no mistake, 
If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. There will be no church. There will be no faith. You are dead in your sins without resurrection. So I want to give you four reasons this morning why I believe that the resurrection is absolutely critical, absolutely important to our lives. I want you to read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 16. Paul says, For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Uh, Stated negatively, no resurrection, no payment for sins. The resurrection is important because your debt became transferable because God raised Christ from the dead. No resurrection, no payment. You are still bearing the weight of your own sins and you will die in your sins. With the resurrection, your payment was transferred to Jesus Christ. As Paul says in verse 3, Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ did not die for his own sins. He was not guilty. The reason that he died is he was taking on the weight of the sin of of us, of, of every man and every woman and every child that has ever lived and ever will live. It was a transference of debt to Jesus Christ. Now this week I went to Starbucks. I don't I probably go there too much. But I went to Starbucks and I and I got my coffee that morning. I get a I get a, a tall red eye. For your information, that's um, that's a tall cup of coffee with some shots of espresso in. That's a good way to just kind of kick off the morning, right? That really gets me gets me going to the office and man, I'm ready to study the word. So I went to my personal barista and I said, Give me a red eye. It's Andy O'Brien. Say Andy. Brew me up a red eye, get me going. And, and, and I handed him my Starbucks card and he swiped my card and he looked at me and said, Brian, there's only three cents on your card. <laughs> so uh, pay up. Well, I pulled out another card and I, and I paid and, and Andy wouldn't give me my coffee until my card validated and the receipt printed. He had to have proof, even though he knows me, that it was paid in full. The receipt was the validation that it had been paid. That receipt is like the resurrection. The resurrection validates that our debt has been paid in full. You will notice in the Gospels, it never says Jesus raised himself. It says God, the Father, raised Jesus from the dead because God, the Father, was validating that payment had been made in full, that he had accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. The resurrection is the receipt that says paid in full. So, through Christ's resurrection, your debt became reversible. It became transferable. And your death became temporary. You will all die. I hope that does not surprise you. You will all die. It's been said the statistics on death are impressive. One on one. One out of every one, you will all die. Uh, This week, I I helped with the memorial service of a a friend of mine that I've known for many, many years. And his final illness, it came on pretty pretty suddenly. It was unexpected. But as I remarked on Thursday, it was not unpredictable. Every single one of us will face a, a similar day, a similar moment. When people are remembering our life on earth. Every single one of us will face that day. And so for most of humanity, the result is fear. They, they, they wrestle with fear. What will that day be like and what will happen after that day? National Institutes of Health did a study last year in 2012. They surveyed people. 
what they discovered, not surprisingly, was that a large majority of people fear death. 68% of people said they had a great fear of death. Now, what was most interesting about the study was that 68% said they had a great fear of death. 74% of people said they had a great fear of public speaking. So, I, and I'm just here to say, it's not that bad. You know, actually you do it for a while. You kind of, it's actually enjoyable. It's not that bad. I personally think that the statistics on fear of death are kind of underreported because people push it away. They push it away, especially when you're young. Don't think about it. Every once in a while, you're forced to think about it. You're confronted with it. But by and large, you just you try and push it away. I've got some relatives like that as they're growing older. They say, no, I just don't think about that. And especially when you're young. Right? You feel great. You're strong. You heal quickly. You can't even imagine. So it's not a great fear. American writer Jack Kerouac observed this about himself as he was young. He said, I'm young now. And I can look upon my body and soul with pride, but it will be mangled soon, and later it will begin to disintegrate, and then I shall die, and die conclusively. How can we face such a fact and not live in fear? Well, Jack, we can face it without fear if we know that we've been united with Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, certainly if we've been united with him in his death, that is, he took on our sins, then if we believe, we also will be united with him in resurrection. Just as certainly as he died, he certainly rose from the dead. And if we were united in death, we will also be united in resurrection. And so we don't have to face that with fear. The writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, said this, Therefore, since the children, that's us, since we share in flesh and blood, we are made in physical bodies, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same. He took on a physical body that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. You don't have to be afraid any longer if you know Jesus Christ. This morning, if you are here with us and you are in fear because you don't know what will happen when you face that moment and you you transfer out of this life into something else. Let me tell you, you can walk out of here with confidence if you simply believe that Jesus died for your sins. The moment that you believe he died for your sins, your debt becomes transferred to him and you don't bear it any longer. So that when you die, your death will be temporary. And it will be overcome by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you will have the hope that you will live forever with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. You do not have to leave here in fear. Third reason the resurrection is important to us is that our future became hopeful through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine yourself as God designed you originally to be? Can you imagine that? You perfected. I want you to read with me again 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 39. Again, Paul writes, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. 
so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable or a corruptible body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, Paul says there's also a spiritual body. And what is that body like? Well, that body is like the body of Jesus Christ. You will receive a resurrection body, incorruptible, a body that cannot degenerate and cannot decay, a body that will never again be susceptible to death. We get a foretaste of that body in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, where he went up on the mountain and God's glory shone upon him and transfigured him and gave us this glimpse into the future. We are told later by Paul and also by John that our body will be like that. It was a body that was glorious, literally glorious. It was radiating. It was beautiful. Daniel says that the righteous will actually shine. They will be radiant and beautiful. C.S. Lewis has told us that, he said, you know, someday when we are glorified, we will see one another and we will probably be tempted to worship one another because we will be so amazing. A body that is healthy and strong and powerful and incorruptible forever. We will receive a resurrection body. Second, we will receive a resurrection mind. I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. 13, 12, Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Paul says, Now we just have partial information. And now we have a mind that has been corrupted by the fall. We don't think properly. We reason incorrectly. I've got a very close friend who believes that the fall did not affect the mind. And so he spends all of his time working on apologetics. He believes that he can argue people into the kingdom of God. I'm just going to tell you, it hasn't worked very well. (laughs) It doesn't work. He's mastered the arguments And then people still choose not to believe. Have you ever known a really smart person who's not a Christian? This town is packed with them, let me tell you. This town is packed with such people. If reason were not affected by the fall, then everyone would believe. Because the facts line up and they would reason properly and reach the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. He is the Son of God. But they don't. So imagine someday when we are in the presence of the Lord, our body is glorified, our mind is glorified, we always reason properly. We take in the facts and we think correctly about them and we're always right. Third, we will receive resurrection emotions. We'll not only think properly about things, we will feel properly about them. That is, we will value things according to their proper place in the universe. And our emotions will not control us. Our emotions will be the correct response to the circumstances and the information that we have. Always. Fourth, we will have a resurrection will. We will always choose what we know is right. We will be in bodies that are perfected. Our minds will take in the information and reason correctly. We will feel right about it, and as a result, we will choose. Always. It's not that we will feel like we have to but that we can. Every time we will choose the correct thing. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because our nature will be utterly and completely transformed by the resurrection. I want you to read with me again chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, 
in verse 51. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, you will be changed. Your body will be changed. Your mind will be changed. Your emotions will be changed. And your will will be changed. Have you ever struggled Have you ever struggled with knowing the right thing to do and really wanting to do it, but then choosing the opposite? Well, of course. That's what Paul devotes the entire second half of Romans 7 to. And that's talking about Paul after he was a Christian, right? That is the experience of every believer. Knowing the right thing to do. Part of us wanting to do the right thing and then choosing the opposite. Why? Because the will is divided. Soren Kierkegaard wrote a wonderful short book called Purity of Heart. It says, Purity of Heart is to will just one thing. And when our nature is transformed, we will will just one thing. Fifth, you will receive resurrection relationships. You ever had a conflict? (laughs) Yeah, right? Every day. Disagreements, miscommunication, anger, harsh words, lack of forgiveness. Relationships that are damaged, relationships that just seem to become broken beyond repair. When we are resurrected, we will be in bodies that are incorruptible, no longer subject to disease or decay. We will think rightly. We will feel properly. We will always choose correctly. And we will do so in the context of relationships that work. We don't miscommunicate. We don't misunderstand. We don't damage one another. We just encourage We just build. We just imbue one another with hope. Sixth, resurrection opportunities. Again, contrary to our current culture, uh, our destiny is not to become chubby babies sitting on clouds with miniature harps, right? That's not not where we're going here. This is where we're going, okay? This This is heaven. This is heaven. And we were made to work. So in the context of relationships that are satisfying, fulfilling, we will be doing labor that is satisfying, fulfilling. Things that we are qualified to do, things that we are excellent at, things that have eternal significance in the context of relationships that work and bodies that can carry it out. That is our destiny. But what about now? Is there there anything that the resurrection does for us now? Absolutely. Paul says we now are living with resurrection power. And not full, not complete, but he says, I now strive to know that and understand that and live in that. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now operational within you and within me because of God's spirit. And so God is progressively, slowly reforming our mind, our emotions, our will, and even healing our relationships as we abide in Jesus Christ and we learn to listen to the voice of the spirit and say no to our flesh. We have a future and we have a hope. Now, fourth, Through Christ's resurrection, your days became 
meaningful. I want you to look with me in 1 Corinthians 15 again in verse 32. 15.32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What's Paul talking about? Uh, Not literal wild beasts. At Ephesus, there, there were people who persecuted him because of the gospel. And he said, if the dead are not raised, if there is no resurrection, then I'm not going to go to a place like Ephesus again and suffer persecution. I don't want to be stoned again. I don't want to be beaten again. I don't want, I'm not going to go on, on ships that are going to crash. I'm not going to go to prison again for something that did not happen. He said, in fact, if the dead are not raised, I've got a piece of advice for you. Party on. Live it up right now. If this is all that there is, let us eat. Let us overeat. Let us drink. Let us drink too much. Let us have a party. Let us be merry because tomorrow we die because this is all there is. Uh, Malcolm Forbes is the one who once said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Right? And I think Paul would say that, amen. Unless there's a resurrection. But because there's a resurrection, what we're living right now is a shadow. It's a vapor. And the real substance is eternity. So live, live for this. Don't live for the shadow. Live for this. And do everything in your power to see that others go there with you. Yes, it's worth the sacrifice and it's worth the sufferings. Because this is just shadow. And that is substance. There was a man named Sir Robert Anderson. He was uh, part of the London Metropolitan Police, late 1800s. And a devout Christian, he made this observation about the resurrection. I think is right on point. He said, apart from the resurrection, the incarnation and the ministry of Jesus would lose all their significance. The crucifixion would be but a martyrdom and the cross a symbol of the victory of death over life. By the resurrection, the crucified one was declared to be the son of God with power. The great truth on which the Christian's faith is founded and to which his hope is anchored. It is the resurrection. It is true And it is the most important truth that we possess. So as we close, Tim is going to lead us in a couple of hymns. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ together. And then we'll close. We'll stand and rejoice in the resurrection together. victory crushed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, this morning we worship you and we worship your son Jesus because you have overcome sin and you have overcome death. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Christ is risen. Amen. Have a great resurrection day.